millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the Bogle Chandler case, the police recorded close to 1,000 possible causes of death. Many first appeared in newspapers, and some were taken seriously enough to investigate. When you get a, a story as juicy as the Bo Chandler case was, of course you hope it's going to continue running for as long as possible. The pressure was on the reporters to come up with a different angle all the time. Gerald Stone was a reporter for the Daily Mirror. It's hard to believe the two people ended up in the situation they did, even if it were uh, one speculated on a mutual suicide, they wouldn't have been found separately and disrobed and in the manner they were. So there was no doubt about it that there was some kind of foul play. Uh, then you really had yourself a field day in terms of speculation. Who would have poisoned these people? If they were out to get Bogle, the scientist, uh, why didn't they just poison him? If they were out to get Margaret Chandler for uh, breaking somebody's heart, why didn't they just get her? Under what kind of circumstances could you think of two people being poisoned? You know, it's hard to make a person take a poison pill. So you then had to assume that something they drank or ate. Uh, so what was it? We knew that there were strange drugs like LSD that people took to give them psychedelic trips and so on. And the assumption was that maybe somebody as a trick even, or as a, an encouragement, had put LSD in both of their drinks to send them off to have a good time. LSD lysergic acid diethyl amide in the horticultural vernacular was the dynamic lifter of the drug world in the 60s. Chief toxicologist Vivian Marnie. LSD just happened to be one of those that I would not have picked up in the separation procedure and the extraction procedure. I knew that. I immediately got in touch with the drug agency in America and the Food and Drug Administration to find out about LSC, a bit of the history of it, and things like the toxicity, and uh, they reported any deaths due to it. And this is what I found out. It was a very toxic chemical. It was being peddled on the market by pushers in small doses in these little square patches, impregnated, they told me, depending on the purity of the LSD where they've been made, from something like 50 to 100 micrograms. Even down to those five micrograms sends party out of this world, seeing pretty pictures and all. The Food and Drug Administration pointed out to me deaths followed naturally from people taking it. Their behavioural pattern out of their mind throwing themselves in front of cars or jumping out of windows. But primarily their death was not due to the toxicity of LSD. A person would have to swallow about 200 
of these squares to overdose, even though it was a very toxic substance. It was suggested that someone at the New Year's party may have slipped LSD into Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler's drinks. But as LSD is fast-acting, even in a low dose, it's inconceivable that the party hosts would not have noticed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler in a hallucinogenic state. It's equally inconceivable that Dr Bogle would have been able to drive after taking a fatal dose. I know I wouldn't have picked it up by the ordinary means. That's okay. I tried another way of getting about it. And I didn't pick up anything. Nothing at all. Nothing. Look, LSD was one of the drugs that were considered as the possible cause without any evidence to support it. My father was a very good family man. He was a very stable, reliable person. And he was a very healthy person. My parents didn't even drink very much alcohol or anything. Went to work every day, came home and took care of his family. So he would not be taking any drug that would interfere with his ability to do those sorts of things. Vivian Bogle dispatched her two eldest children back to New Zealand in the safe care of relatives. My sister and I left the country with my grandparents and then we stayed with them in Wellington. And my mother stayed with my brother and the baby sister for the inquest. Well, I think we were shielded by distance to an extent. The news was obviously in the New Zealand papers as well. And I did feel really sensitive about that and I know my sister did too. She had a school bag with the name Bogle on it, so she hid that name by turning that school bag so that the name faced her, not outside, because she didn't want that name to be seen by other people on the school bus. We were all so sort of hurt by the whole event anyway, and ordinary friends and acquaintances would say, oh, are you related to Dr. Bogle as soon as they hear your name and things like that. And it was really awful. And the fact that I hadn't even gone to the funeral and grieved together, I feel that was a terrible lap for me and I wish I'd been able to go. On the 7th of May 1963, press photographers jostled for positions outside the Central Court of Petty Sessions in Liverpool Street, Sydney as the inquest began into the deaths of Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler. The atmosphere at the inquest was very great. The media were certainly interested. The public gallery was always overflowing. In the cramped timberline courtroom, Coroner Jack Loom started proceedings. Over the next three weeks, he said, he expected to hear from 50 witnesses. The first witnesses called Ken and Ruth Nash, the hosts of the now infamous New Year's party. The Nashes painted the gathering as a sedate and sober affair, with 20 invitation-only guests. Gib Bogle was described as the life of the party, and the Chandlers as outsiders, who were only invited at Dr Bogle's suggestion. In his interview with the police, 
Ken Nash said that he'd witnessed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler embracing in the backyard. Yet he told the inquest that he saw no undue friendliness between the couple that evening. Bizarrely, the police barrister didn't contest Nash's false evidence. In heavy rain the following day, the inquest convened on the banks of the Lanco River. The coroner inspected the locations where the bodies were found. Dr. Bogle was laying face down a metre out from the edge of the riverbank. On the mudflats directly below his body, scientific detectives had retrieved three items of clothing, Dr. Bogle's belt, Mrs. Chandler's shoes and her underpants. They then moved 15 metres south to where a constable had found Mrs. Chandler on the mudflats. Her body was covered head to toe with opened out beer cartons. Back at Central Court, scientific detectives said that they had searched the river and Dr. Bogle's car and found nothing to aid their inquiry. They had taken scrappings from Dr. Bogle's clothing and pockets for analysis. Food, poisons and medicines from various homes across the city were also delivered to the government analyst. The most anticipated witness slated to appear, Geoffrey Chandler, the prime suspect. Well, I had no idea how I was going to handle it. I was very much the innocent at large in, in this big city. And legal representation, that sort of thing, was, was something that I had absolutely no acquaintanceship with. Prior to the inquest, Chandler was approached by 33-year-old barrister Kevin Murray. He just turned up one day and said, there's going to be an inquest. He said, do you have any representative? And I said, no. It never occurred to me that I should have. My attitude was that only guilty people required representation. So I wasn't guilty, so why should I require representation? And he said, unless you are represented, you are going to be churned up in mincemeat, carved up into little bits pointed out the error of that view, offered his services, so I accepted. On the 11th day of the inquest, Geoffrey Chandler attempted to avoid a massive media contingent by entering the court through a rear entrance via the adjoining central police station. With the ubiquitous reporters all around the place, and cameramen and so forth, I was doing my best to sneak in the back way of Central Court without being observed. And then this vast room with me sitting in the polished wooden box. The coroner asked Chandler about the events of New Year's morning. He said that his wife was attracted to Dr Bogle. And before leaving the party at 4am, he arranged with Bogle to take Margaret to their home in Croydon. When he returned home at 10.30 that morning with the children, he assumed that Margaret had been home and had gone for a drive with Dr Bogle. He said he had no concern for her safety at all. So far as this guy not telling us the truth, we were in a situation where almost everything he told us could be supported by other evidence. The only thing that we had was a disparity of a few minutes 
between 4 and 4.30. So there just wasn't any evidence to encourage our suspicion. Basically, the inquest was just another horror upon horrors. It was a matter of closing the shell around and maintaining the stern defences, the stiff defences. The concept that they would find me guilty, so to speak, never really entered my head. I knew what had happened, that I was not guilty of anything at all, and I suppose I was pleased that it was over and get the hell out of there. Chandler's girlfriend, Pam Logan, appeared next. Miss Logan was a particularly attractive young lady and the sensational aspects of her having this relationship with the main suspect in the matter, Geoffrey Chandler, generated an enormous interest from the public, the police and from the media. Pam Logan confirmed Chandler's alibi. He'd arrived at her home around 4.30am, the estimated time Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler was seen in his car beside the Lane Cove River. At the outset, the coroner had warned that he would suppress evidence that he considered against the interests of decency. That meant that there was to be little public interrogation as to why the victims were found dead together. Two controversial witnesses were not invited to testify. Mrs Margaret Fowler, who claimed she had a long affair with Dr Bogle, and Bill Berry, who'd had a short affair with Margaret Chandler. I did get the impression that there was an effort put forward during the inquest to dampen down the sensational sexual aspects of the case. The coroner cleared the courtroom to hear evidence deemed too salacious for the public ear. The assumption at the time was that they had gone there to have intercourse. This was borne out by the fact that his coat which I assume was placed down on the ground, possibly over the carpet, had traces of spermatozoa on the inside of the coat. In addition to that, an examination of his penis also showed traces of spermatozoa. This vital evidence of sexual activity revealed that the victims couldn't have been suffering the effects of a poison when they arrived at the river. Remarkably, this information didn't leak to the press. You mean that there was a, a, there was a suggestion of a sperm being found? And uh, no, I did not know that. From what I knew of the case, it had appeared that uh, if Bogle and Chandler had gone to this uh, area for illicit sexual relationships, uh, that something happened to make them violently ill before they ever got around to having sex. Even more remarkably, it wasn't shared with the chief toxicologist who was still searching for the cause of death. I'm upset 42 years later that I either read or informed of the salient parts of the police report and also the autopsy reports. And when I read into those reports, it points me in a totally different direction. I'm annoyed that I spent a lot of time on poisons that didn't fit the circumstances, time-wise or the state of the bodies. It was just impossible, some of the things I was looking for. Uh, 
I think that the inquest was wrong to suppress evidence. Dr Bogle's daughter, Janet Bogle. Uh, and obviously the police were wrong not to tell the toxicologists what they knew, which could have saved everyone a lot of unhappiness and pain. You know, if, if all the information was out there, it would have helped to get a, a sort of a explanation about what actually happened. That kind of moralistic attitude, obviously you have to put that aside if you want to do a proper investigation and find out what happened. It actually reduced my confidence in, in the whole system, really. The inquest could not establish any person who had caused the deaths. It could not establish a motive and could not even establish the cause of death. So we were entirely frustrated in actually bringing the matter to a satisfactory conclusion. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Barely two weeks after the inquest, Geoffrey Chandler was back in the frame for murder. Detectives travelled to Brisbane on information supplied by zoologist Dr Robert Endine. Endine claimed that he knew of a poison that could have killed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler. The toxin of the deadly cone shell Conus geographus. Endine introduced the detectives to his cone shell researcher, Claire Berry. I was doing research at the time on the venom of the cone shells and testing it on different animals at different strengths. Unknown to Endine, Claire Berry was a friend of the Chandlers. Three detectives interviewed me. I was a naive 23-year-old. I thought, oops, you know, they're going to think I've had something to do with it. It was Claire Berry's husband, Bill Berry, who'd had a brief affair with Margaret Chandler. They just couldn't believe that anybody could have such an open marriage and not be jealous. They were dead set, basically, that Jeff would have been very jealous and that was his motive. Suspecting a breakthrough in the case, the detectives interrogated the young researcher. And they said, is it possible? And I said, well, I don't think so because you can't just dose somebody's drink with it or something. It's unstable. You'd have to carry it around in a thermos flask, frozen, and then you'd have to ask the victim to hold still while you inject it into them because that's how it's done. It's, you, you wouldn't actually expect it to have any effect if it was eaten. The detectives returned to Sydney with a sample of shellfish poison for analysis. These are the way out suggestions about poisons used to kill animals. You know, Amazon dart poison, Conus geographus, shellfish poison. How does anybody get hold of the poison from a shellfish and, and inject both of those people? To me, they were unlikely. The further it went on, the media was regurgitating all the information, putting forward completely outlandish possible causes of death. 
there was a favoured theory repeatedly postulated by the tabloid newspapers. There was a suggestion that these deaths could have been caused by some type of sex stimulant. They even suggested that the two may have taken aphrodisiacs. The other one that always comes up is Spanish fly, cantharidin. But I did analyse it individually, together with a few other aphrodisiacs that the doctors told me that that would be a possibility. I didn't pick up anything. See, all those had to be looked at. I I scanned it through for all these and nothing was coming up positive. If I was going to go through all these way out requests as I regarded them, I was going to eventually run out of sample. Let's face it, there's only a limit to amount of stomach, liver, kidney, spleen, intestine. The media's interest in the case continued unabated for decades, and the void of a resolution was filled by absurd conspiracy theories. Of course, a story like this uh, attracts a lot of rumour-mongering, and when you don't know, you kind of make it up. So it was natural that you said, well, what else could this guy be doing that everybody is suspicious of? And uh, in those days, uh, which was the height of the Cold War and worried about the atomic bomb and everything else, so stories about a death ray or a secret nuclear thing or working for the CIA, all of these things were grist for the mill. And the press was wide open in its speculation. The media wondered whether Dr. Bogle's research had anything to do with his death. Gibb was a very extroverted person. He was... uh, Charming, full of life, very interested in the science that he was doing. Scientist Doug Milne had worked closely with Bogle at the CSIRO's radiophysics laboratories, where they were developing a device called a Ruby Maser. Newspaper reporters delved into science fiction by equating masers to ray guns. In the 1930s, Japanese Godzilla films featured maser weapons which fired intense microwave-like beams. How Bogle and Chandler would come to die from such an invention was never postulated, especially as the maser filled an entire room. Uh, Well, I did read in the press stories of death rays and that sort of thing, and uh, it was really quite ridiculous. At least up to when I worked with him, we were developing a highly sensitive radio receiver to pick up signals from distant galaxies. It was not a, a death ray or anything like that. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the maser that we were working on was not even like a laser. It didn't transmit signals, it received signals. But detectives did explore the possibility that Bogle had been murdered because of his scientific work. Indeed, he had recently resigned his job at the CSIRO to take up a position in America with a powerful communications and defence technology firm. We knew, of course, that Dr Bogle had arranged to go over and work in America for the Bell Laboratories, and we considered the fact that he may have been engaged in some sort of secret war experiments. Bell Labs was a, certainly a, a premier research laboratory. Gibb wouldn't have been a, um, a top man there by any means, I don't think. He wouldn't have been worth killing, put it that way. My father was a very gentle person. He was not interested in making war on anybody at all. And he wasn't that interested in politics either. 
I mean, it's just absurd. And there was absolutely no evidence to suggest that he was himself involved in any of that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm sure it was a beat-up because, as was eventually revealed by Dr Bagel's superiors at the CSIRO, that he was not going to be engaged in any secret experiments and had specifically stated to his employers in America that he wasn't prepared to do so. But the assassination theories kept on coming. Espionage involving scientific and defence secrets that helped bring the world to a flashpoint. Only ten weeks before the mysterious deaths, global war threatened when America discovered Soviet nuclear weapons on its doorstep on the island of Cuba. Two days before Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler died, a Soviet espionage case known as the Skripov Affair came to a head in suburban Australia. At a time of understandable espionage paranoia, it was no coincidence that the bodies of both victims were tested for radioactivity. But it was ludicrous to conceive of two people in good health, attending a party, then dying instantly of radioactivity. We know from more recent cases perpetrated by Russia's intelligence agencies that victims of radioactive poisoning take days, even weeks to die an agonising death. Former senior British intelligence officer Peter Wright would later jump on the espionage bandwagon. He told the Sydney newspaper that Dr Bogle had been working for Australia's spy agency, ASIO, but was eliminated by the British when they discovered he was a Russian agent. Wright's claim had no substance whatsoever. But the New South Wales police asked ASIO if it ever had a relationship with Dr Bogle. ASIO denied that he'd ever worked for them, but it did confess to having a relationship with someone else associated with the case. I mean, ASIO asked me questions about this person and that person, so I suppose in that sense you could say I was working for them. As an electronic specialist, Geoffrey Chandler had worked on top-secret defence projects. I had received the security clearance at one stage because I was working for EMI on something to do with long-range weapons establishment in South Australia. ASIO investigated me and found that I was pure white and 21 and satisfactory to work on long-range weapons classified material. Chandler met regularly with ASIO officers when working on sensitive projects for the government-owned CSIRO. I suppose a lot of it was sort of cross-character referencing. I knew somebody, so they asked me about somebody, and no doubt they probably asked somebody that knew me about me. So in, in that sense, I suppose you could say that I worked for them, but uh, specifically as a sort of a paid job or something, no. Rather than an agent, he was most likely considered an informant. But such was the paranoia of the era that Geoffrey Chandler too believed that global politics was behind the deaths of Dr Bogle and his wife. The only theory that stacked up in my mind was that Gibb was assassinated by an intelligence agency and that Margaret was the innocent victim by being the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And there were good stories at the time, and I firmly believed at one time that this was the case, but uh, I think subsequent events have shown that it's entirely wrong. As the stories about Jeffrey Chandler developed, there was quite a lot of reason to be suspicious of him. And the whole idea that it was likely to be a murder, which I think was the common assumption that he was the prime suspect, really. And I, I definitely think that I had suspicions of him and including fear, really, of him. In early February 1964, After 13 months searching for the poison or drug that had caused the deaths of Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler, toxicologist Viv Marnie admitted defeat. If they'd been killed by a poison, I I always had confidence in myself that I'd pick it up. I don't think I was overconfident. I just thought, well, it's, it's got to come out eventually. And it didn't. It didn't before I ran out of sample. And that was the end of the story, as far as I'm concerned. I suppose I had a mitt to feed on it. Well, I left the laboratory about half past two. I remember it being a very humid night, hot and humid, and very pressing. And I got into my car and threw my coat into the back, and I used to drive up onto the Carl Expressway. I remember it, you know, turning over the case over in my mind and over in my mind all the time. I wasn't so much berating myself for failing. I knew I'd given it all I could. I drove off into the uh, Harbour Bridge and um, uh, I was very hot, very uncomfortable in my car. And I, I went through the uh, toll gates and as I hit the middle of the bridge, I don't think I was fully conscious. I couldn't have been because I got out of the car in the middle of the Harbour Bridge. <laughs> I felt this rush of air and I thought, well, you know, that's a nice breeze. And I was, I was walking out into the, uh, into the path of a car. I just thought I'd been involved in an accident, but uh, fortunately, uh, nothing, uh, no accident happened. But uh, when I was off the bridge and with a couple of lads from... Uh, who had followed me and in another car, and uh, they sat with me to about three o'clock and half past three. And I just thought there had been an accident, and they informed me now that your car was all right. Naturally, I was thinking much about my car as about myself. And uh, I thought, well, I've got nothing more to contribute with the case, and um, I uh, resigned around about. Uh, March or April, I think it was, and uh, took another position in private industry. When I first contacted Vibmani in 2005, he quipped, what took you so long? He said that I was the first person to inquire about his work on the Bogle Chandler case. When I went to his home to film an interview, His only stipulation was that he would tell me about his investigation from beginning to end without interruption. About half an hour into the interview, he mentioned something he'd never told anybody besides his boss at the Government Analyst Laboratory. 
When the two bloods came in with the rest of the organs, I immediately looked at them and I said to myself, well, they've got a purple coloration. I always thought that was significant, that both bloods had a purplish coloration. I gave a lot of time after hours at the Mitchell Library. I, I wasn't successful in uh, pinpointing anything. I tried to even develop a method to analyse blood. From that moment on, I suspected that the colour of the blood was the missing piece of evidence that would help solve the Bogle Chandler mystery. Coming up in episode four, the evidence that finally explains what killed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler. Lancove Council and Willoughby Council and Ride Council and the Health Commission developed very thick files of complaints from local people. They obviously wrote to anyone they could trying to get something done about it. They died from a gas. I agree with that. I agree that these two people died from an inhaled gas as opposed to a pill or something like that because an inhaled gas tends to act very quickly or a pill or something else does not. It seemed completely feasible. Sort of the most realistic and sensible theory on the course of death that come up in the last 20 or 30 years. It seemed eminently sensible. Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler podcast series is produced by Black Bottle Films with the assistance of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 